Welcome to the Tactics Meeting, Episode 5, Western Canada Marine Response Corporation, for Monday, February 8th, 2021. I'm Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. Today's Tactics Meeting Safety message is for confined spaces. Deaths in confined spaces are all too common. Workers must be able to recognize confined spaces and understand their hazards. A confined space is one that is large enough to enter, has limited means of entry and exit, and is not intended for continuous human occupancy. 78% of all deaths in confined spaces are caused by lack of oxygen. Never enter a confined space where air monitoring for oxygen concentrations has not been done and where forced air ventilation is not taking place. Now let's get to this amazing episode. I'm here with uh, Michael Lowry from WCMRC. Michael, you did a really amazing presentation for the Washington State Maritime Cooperative Seminar in October, and I thought it would be great to get you on the program and talk about the work that WCMRC is doing in British Columbia, the kind of expansion that you're doing with oil spill response equipment. It's really quite amazing. Some of the ship drawings that you showed me make me want to dust my license off and and go back (laughs) to sea. So Michael Lavery, welcome to the program. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me on today, Dan. Um, And congratulations on this, this new endeavor. It's uh, it's great to uh, to have a you know response specific podcast. Um, you know we were mentioning uh, just before we get on here that I, you know I'm a big podcast junkie, so it's it's great to be able to be on a podcast. So congratulations on uh, on this endeavor, and hopefully um, uh, people enjoy what they're going to hear today. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm a podcast junkie myself. I've listened to podcasts like MacBreak Weekly forever, and just have a whole stable of podcasts that vie for my attention. And we've been meaning to do this broadcast for a long time. And since we can't get together for Clean Pacific or for IOSC in person, I don't get to go out and meet with people. I thought now's the time. This is the perfect opportunity to to finally start the podcast and and talk about some of these these things. So thanks you for, for coming on the program. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, we're hoping to talk about today um, is, is spill response in, in Canada, uh, specifically some of the some of the exciting things that are happening uh, with our organization, um, uh, you know, now and, and into over the next couple of years. But, you know, I, I wonder if it might be just beneficial for folks who, who may not be familiar with this industry. Um, either you know, either in, in, in on the American or the Canadian side, just to kind of give a bit of an overview of where where we come and where the industry comes out of in terms of um, uh, the the things we have in place today, and it provides a bit of context in terms of where we're where we're going and where we want to move to in the next in the next couple of years. Um, you know, and I was thinking of going all the way back to to the Exxon Valdez. Um, you know, WCMRC has a history in 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 Canada on the West Coast going back to the mid seventies, but we were really, we, at that time, we were sort of localized in Vancouver Harbor, uh, which is the, uh, the the biggest port by far in, in, in Canada. Um, so we were really looking after, uh, we, were, we were a small uh, spill response co-op uh, looking after spills 
um, from some of the oil handling facilities in, in Vancouver Harbor. But that was really uh, the extent of our operation. And, and it was the it was the Exxon Valdez that that really triggered the Canadian government and you know, obviously as well as the American government to to take a look at what was in place for for ship safety, vessel safety, and and uh, and spill response should something go wrong, and even though that 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 particular spill uh, didn't happen in in Canadian waters, um, it certainly had an impact on um, on Canadian regulations today. And when you look at that spill, you know what it what it what the what the Canadian government took away, and similar lessons as as the American government, is that there needs to be you know robust spill response in place. Um, and the Canadian government decided that that um, you know that's the response, not only the actual response itself, but the uh, the, the planning, the steady state, the, the preparedness that needs to be funded by by industry. So in, in Canada, the uh, the shipping and the oil industry uh, provide our funds for that uh, steady state, and then if there's a spill, it's it's that particular polluter. But even though we're industry funded, um, we are we are you know regulated by Transport Canada, um, so that's the entity that that sets uh, planning standards. You know how fast we have to respond in certain areas of the coast, how much we have to be able to clean up, and so really we're beholden to those planning standards, and, and we demonstrate to them through through exercises and and uh, and and response plans that we're able to meet that. Um, you know, but when you when we looked at that. Um, the, the, the regulations that are in place, they, they really, you know, they date back to the, the mid 90s and they hadn't changed much. So we, we were approached by uh, Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline, uh, which is the, uh, the line that brings um, oil from, uh, from Northern Alberta down to the uh, West Coast for export. And uh, they, were, they were hoping to, to twin their pipeline. Um, and part of that obviously meant that there was gonna be an increase in, in tanker traffic in the uh, in the Juan de Fuca Strait and in those southern southern shipping lanes, so they approached us and and, and asked us, you know, what what could be done to to enhance the spill response that that's in place, um, you know, on, on the west coast here in the southern portion of the west coast, and so we worked with them. They they'd had some risk assessments done through uh, through DNV, and identified certain areas along the shipping lanes that were at higher risk. And when we, you know, we kind of came back and said, look, you know, there's, there's, there's so much that is outside of a spill responder's control, uh, you know, similar to a firefighter, for, for example, um, you know, you can't control the, the, you know, the weather, the winds, the, the tides, the, the size of the spill, but you, you certainly can control how fast you get to the scene of an incident. And we proposed um, really reducing the response times uh, that, that exist in, in Canada um, on those in those shipping lanes. So, by way of example, and I won't don't need to get into all the all the details there. But by way of example, um, in the Juan de Fuca Strait, you know, currently for a large size spill, you know, like a 10,000 ton spill, uh, we're we're looking at uh, during current regulations, uh, sort of a maximum 72 hour response time, um, and that uh, you know communities that's not good enough for them. And um, We've uh, our our proposal here. This, the enhancements we're putting in place are actually based now on a maximum six-hour response time in, in the Juan de Fuca uh, Strait, the Georgia Strait, and, and those shipping lanes. And then even 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 uh, shorter response times in, in Vancouver Harbor, we're looking at a maximum of two hours. So when we came to that uh, that that uh, that conclusion, um, committing to those new response times meant a, a, a significant significant enhancement in terms of where we have bases, uh, vessels, um, you know, people, equipment, 
Um, so we've had to um, build out build out, build out a program where we are uh, adding a number of new bases uh, along the shipping lane. So, you know, previously we had a, a main base in Vancouver Harbor, and then we had a smaller base on Vancouver Island at, at Duncan. But what we're doing now is we're adding bases uh, in Nanaimo, uh, in Port Alberni and Uculet on the west side of Vancouver Island, uh, down near Victoria at a place called Beecher Bay. Um, and then uh, up near the Gulf Islands, uh, Sydney is, is another base, and then back on the on the lower mainland at the Fraser River. So those are the places where we're adding new bases, um, and some of those bases will be actually staffed 24/7. So our, our you know currently our our crews are on call 24/7, but um, they uh, you know they they might be responding from their house. So the Sydney base and the Vancouver base will be will be staffed now 24/7, just just like a fire hall. And so, to, so those bases uh, will require vessels. So we're, we're essentially uh, doubling the size of our, our fleet from um, 44 vessels, adding another 44 vessels. So we'll be close to 90 vessels all told on the coast when we're done here. And then, you know, to man those vessels, we needed new, new people too. So uh, we're, adding, we're, we're adding about 135, 125 uh, new personnel as well. So we'll be, we'll be looking at 225 full-time staff when, when, when all this is, is said and done. Um, so, you know, pretty significant um, uh, enhancements over the next couple of, couple of years here. Well, you were talking about the uh, skimming vessels that you're having built. Some of these are pretty uh, stout vessels. Can you talk about the size and the capabilities of these new skimming vessels? Yeah, no, um, uh, certainly. You know, when, when um, in, in spill response, there's, there's uh, Different, different, uh, different types of vessels for different purposes. Uh, you know, you have your basic workboat to, to pull boom, move people around. Uh, you have your landing craft if, when you're responding. You know, remote locations. You need to do beach response, clean up, and that and that piece. Um, and then there's the barges. So we have small mini barges. We have large response barges to to, to hold the oil. But the you know the workhorses are the skimming vessels. And uh, these these vessels, if for those folks that aren't familiar. Uh, they're, they're purpose built for, for oil spill cleanup. And uh, they, they really have two, two modes, if you will. They're sort of like a transformer type vessel. So in their, in their regular mode, uh, they, um, they're, they're very fast boats. Um, our, our, ours go you know, around 30 knots or so. And um, when they get to the spill site, uh, they're designed so that uh, these, these spill, these spill uh, boom arms will come out over the side um, and form kind of a, a V sweep, if you will. And uh, these trap doors open on the sides of the hull and uh, the oil is sort of funneled into these trap doors and there's these brush skimmers then that rotate, rotate through it. Um, so you have, a, you have a V shape from above and then the vessel itself is driving into the oil and then these, these skimmers will, uh, will, will clean it up. And so uh, these, these, these vessels um, are larger ones or you know, can clean up about 30 tons uh, roughly an hour um, if they're if they're in heavy oil, and then they hold about uh, that same amount as well. So if they're going full on in, in heavy oil, uh, they they will they will they will clean up about 30 tons, and then that needs to be offloaded, uh, you know, roughly once an hour. And we, you don't really want that vessel to to stop. Um, so the the system is designed so that you you, br you bring along a mini barge. That oil is pumped out into that mini barge, which is either taken ashore or to a, uh, a larger, a larger storage barge that, that might be nearby, so that that vessel can continue to operate. And they are they are staffed, um, and 
uh, and crewed and outfitted so that they could operate 24/7 if required. Um, so they've they've also got uh, infrared cameras on them at the at the at the top so that they can they can detect that heat signature of the oil so they can operate um, at nighttime. And you know we're, we we have different types of skimming vessels or different sizes of skimming vessels. Uh, we have the sort of sheltered ones, and then we have the the ones that are more suitable for for the open the open ocean. So it's it's, it's going to depend on the type of spill, the location, uh, the, you know, the conditions on which which boats or which tools you're going to use for that um, uh, that particular that particular spill. And then you know the other thing we looked at for on the vessel side is um, we looked at vessels that, that could could really handle the, uh, the the heavier weather you see on on the west coast of Vancouver Island and and, and other areas on on the coast. Uh, and it was a bit of a gap for us. So. We, uh, we went out to a, a, a naval architect in Vancouver and asked them to come up with a, a vessel that could handle the, the, the West Coast. So this is a brand new type of vessel. We're calling it a coastal response vessel. And it's, um, it's, it's, not, it's not designed to, to, to uh, skim oil or clean up oil. Um, it's not designed to go fast, uh, but it is designed to, to get there in, in any kind of weather condition. Um, so it's, you know, it's, a, it's a wider vessel. Um, you're, uh, you're, you're not looking at high speed, it's about, about roughly 10 knots, um, but it's kind of slow and steady and it's going to get you to that, uh, that, 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 that spill site where other vessels may not be able to handle that. And then, and then it's also designed to be um, sort of a, a bit of an operating platform as well. So uh, if you're offshore, you've got, uh, you've got a full, you know, full galley, a full accommodation. So some of the smaller vessels could raft up and, and uh, this could be used as sort of a uh, sort of forward operating base during, during the spill. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the MSRC uh, big blue boats, the Park Responder, Oregon Responder, Hawaii Responder, in their in their speed and their ability to provide some forward command post operation. Yeah, these are these would be slightly smaller than that. Um, the, the the Park Responder uh, vessel that uh, that MSRC has, and the other class, the Responder class, there, uh, we are getting a, a an offshore supply vessel which would be similar to the Park Responder. Um, so that's, uh, that, that vessel is not, uh, won't be a new build. We'll be contracting that out. Um, and then, uh, and then our, uh, and then our staff, our, our response staff will be working on that. So that would be, uh, the, you know, that would be certainly the, the, the biggest vessel in our fleet when it, when it comes on and it would operate very similar to the, the, the park responder in that it can, you know, take equipment out and it, it can be another, uh, you know, off forward operating platform, but also it can, it can hold oil. Um, as well, so it'll be that multi-purpose uh, vessel, and we'll have one of those stationed in the uh, Victoria region. Um, you know, uh, probably, probably coming online in in uh, 2022. Okay, yeah, you need those open water vessels. That water off the coast of Vancouver Island can be some of the roughest in the country. I think it actually holds the record for highest recorded wave at 110 feet off the coast of Vancouver Island some some years ago. Yeah, yeah, we certainly wouldn't be out uh, doing uh, doing skimming in those conditions, that's for sure. No, but people talk about how rough the North Atlantic is. Those people haven't crossed the Gulf of Alaska very, very, <laughs> very recently. When you yeah, talk about the yeah. infrared, I mean, I, when we, during Deepwater Horizon, I helped put a bunch of infrared cameras on the skimming fleet that was out, was out there along with infrared cameras on the majority of uh, MSRC's fleet in the, in the Pacific Northwest. But recently we've seen those infrared cameras move to drones. And that has really been 
uh, quite an improvement. FLIR uh, partnered with DJI and you can now buy, I think it's the Maverick drone uh, with a FLIR infrared camera built into it. So what a great way to try to keep a skimming vessel right in the, in the thickest of the oil. And you have, guys have some recent experience using drones for that purpose, do you not? Yeah, we've, um, you know, obviously we've been looking at uh, surveillance uh, technologies and, and how they can help us with response for the last number of years. Um, we've, uh, we've looked at, uh, and we have a number of aerostat uh, balloons with, with the FLIR cameras on them uh, in the fleet. And, and for those that aren't aware, that's essentially a, 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 a blimp type structure that's launched and t launched from the vessel and it's tied, it's tethered to the vessel and has FLIR cameras on it. Um, but you know, if you get you get a little bit of wind, and those can be those can be challenged. Uh, and we've been using drones for a while to do uh, you know shoreline work, shoreline assessment. Um, but it wasn't really until this most recent spill, um, or rather, it's it's actually a shipwreck. So it's it's uh, it's a ship that's leaking oil uh, up in Nuka Sound on on the west side of Vancouver Island. And um, it's really the first time that we we brought the drone operator and the drone right onto the uh, the skimming vessels and the um, you know the workboats that are that are doing the the U sweeps, and the the captain can look right right at the uh, you know the drone the drone feed as as they're piloting the the vessel, and particularly in this response where you have oil welling up, you know at at different locations, we're able to target that uh, that upwelling right away. With the drone and zero in on those, um, you know, up, on those upwellings, on those slicks, and it's been extremely effective uh, for us in terms of uh, our, our, our boom sweep uh, operations. And it's some, certainly something that we're going to look at going forward, and, and maybe even bringing that capacity in house because it's it's really changed the game for us um, having that uh, having that situational awareness right in the uh, in the wheelhouse of our vessels. So you think about bringing it in house. So the drones you're using now, you've you've uh, hired an operator to bring yeah. their equipment in. Yeah, we've got a we've got a contract relationship with uh, some different different firms that that uh, that are on call for us that uh, that uh, you know that 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 are that are available. Um, and uh, it, you know that that that's been great uh, as well. But you know potentially you know maybe there's some in-house capacity. So. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's these, these technologies are changing all the time and people are finding new benefits and new uses for them all the time. Um, but certainly, um, you know, we found a, a huge advantage in having that, uh, that drone capacity, like I say, right in the wheelhouse. Yeah, in my, in my uh, workday capacity as response manager for the Washington State Maritime Cooperative, um, I have a drone operator uh, right there on speed dial, you know, and that that first assessment, being able to fly a drone off the dock and see you know, how, much, how much sheen or oil is really in the water, how far has it really gone? Especially at night when operators that are standing on the deck of the boat, you know, re even with lights on, really can't see the oil. It just reflects off, it's just blackness, right? So they can smell it and they can, get some idea, but they, they can't really see it. And the, the drone really changes the, the, the game and it can be on scene so quickly. It's so much less expensive than flying a helicopter. It really makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I can say that uh, we, we, we faced that exact challenge um, a number of years ago, there was a, a spill in, in Vancouver Harbor and um, 
it was, uh, it was, you know, we, in the, in the business, we call it a mystery spill. You don't know where the source is. You don't know, no one, no one's taking responsibility for it. You, you just know that there's reports of oil out there. Um, and so there's a number of anchorages in Vancouver Harbor and uh, none of the vessels um, claimed responsibility. Uh, we just knew that there was reports of oil. And, and when we were activated, you know, it, it was, it was, it was dark. Um, and our folks kind of fumbled around trying to find, you know, trying to find the source of this bill. So to have, uh, to have, a, have had a drone with FLIR capability in that situation would have been a, a huge game changer. Yeah, no, I just, I love that. I love that technology. I'm happy to be, be able to, to utilize it that way. And you know, our first episode for this podcast, actually our second, second episode was about, about drones and, and one of my incident commanders, Dave Sawicki, he's, he's been flying drones now for a while. And MSRC now has two drones in the Pacific Northwest full-time plus a contract with another operator. So it's possible for me to get uh, a drone almost anywhere in the Puget Sound within a couple of hours to get some, some height of eye. And that, that really is the difference. But there's another thing I wanted to, to talk to you about. I mean, uh, we've con- talked about the Osro side and, you know, that's where I come. I come into this from the maritime industry and from the Osro side. Matter of fact, I was first with Clean Sound Cooperative when WC MSR- MRC was called Berard Clean, right? That's when it was the, you know, and I remember doing some of the 10,000 ton drills that you guys uh, did, but, but the Osros in the United States are, are not the spill management team but you're both, right? We are, yeah, yeah. No, um, it's it's funny when I when I started in my role with with the organization is communications manager. So you know I do I do a lot of engagement and and um, it was I was the first person in the role for the organization. So um, there hadn't been a lot of sort of you know, proactive outreach to to folks. And and what I found um, when I started to do that is most people didn't know um, that this that WCMRC existed. Um, some people knew about Burrard Clean, um, but uh, there, there, was, there was kind of a general lack of awareness. And, and part of that was I was finding that people just were struggling with, uh, with uh, WCMRC or Western Canada Marine Response Corporation. So I, I went back and I, I talked to the leadership. I said, you know, have we thought about something a little bit catchier as a name? And they said, well, we used to be called Burrard Clean. I was like, well, that's, you know, that's actually good. People, people remember that. And they said, well, we, the problem is we get all these calls from uh, uh, from folks asking to get their uh, their clothes dry clean. So maybe it wasn't the greatest name after all. But yeah, no, we um, we we are both. We uh, we we have the vessels and equipment uh, for the you know for the actual um, on water operations. But we do have a full fully staffed incident management team. So <clears throat> uh, folks uh, folks are trained in 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 all incident management roles. We have two functions. So I'm the communications manager during my day to day, but I'm the public information officer for for a spill, and we train that way through exercise. We're all trained on on ICS, and really we're we're flexible in that we can adapt to the uh, in Canada they're called the polluter, but some people call them the responsible party. But it's we don't really know um, their capacity coming in, so the, it could be a spill with a uh, you know one of the oil majors, and they're going to bring bring in a full team, and they may not need your support. Um, or you could be looking at a situation where you have a small uh, tug and barge operation where they don't have that support. So we're able to bring in that incident management team to the operation um, and support them that way. So we are we are very flexible and uh, and nimble on that on that side of things. And uh, you know we've we've been running through 
ICS to respond to spills for you know, for the last couple of decades, and, and the Canadian Coast Guard has just come on as well, uh, fully embracing the ICS system. And so it's uh, you know it's a fantastic way to manage a response, and uh, it's it's really come a long way, even in the last couple of years uh, on on the West Coast here. So if uh, an American uh, shipper had an incident and you stood up your incident command team and they brought their uh, away team, incident management team uh, into Canada, uh, good luck with that now with COVID, but in, brought them into, into Canada. Do you remain primarily the incident command team? Do you continue to act as the incident commander or will you step in the, into the background and let that foreign team take over? How does that work? And do you have any uh, regulatory requirements to stay in the lead that are different from my understanding of U.S. law? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the principles are the same, but it's all about the nuances, right? So uh, in, in, in Canada, the, the response organizations get certified by Transport Canada. Um, so we are we are a, a TC Transport Canada certified response organization, which under the Shipping Act um, allows us uh, something called responder responder immunity. And to maintain that responder immunity, uh, organizations have to be contracted uh, to to WCM or through 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 WCMRC. So if you're looking at the the incident management team per se. Um, you know, certainly the, the approach is in Canada is that you, it's a unified command um, and WCMRC does not have a seat in, in unified command. Uh, in, in Canada, it's again similar to the States, but you have a federal representative, uh, that's the Canadian Coast Guard up here. Uh, you have a provincial representative, which is the BC Ministry of Environment. Uh, you have a local First Nation, whatever nation is sort of the most impacted or the primary, uh, primary nation. Um, you have the um, uh, municipality, you know, you know the, the the local municipality, and then you have the the polluter. So th that's that's typically those five entities are typically what what forms unified command. WCMRC um, has occupies a position what we call slow response manager, uh, which is really almost like a technical uh, advisory role to the uh, to to the to the polluter. And so some folks may not may not have that expertise, and so we're able to provide that expertise. Um, and then we're able to provide those other roles, you know, planning section chief, uh, environment, environment leads and whatnot. Um, but as with, with any incident, uh, as you're aware, um, they're, all, they're all unique, they're all different. So uh, if someone comes up and, and uh, you know, they're, um, uh, you know they're, they're, they're well positioned to, to be a planning section chief, certainly we'd be swapping in and out. So I, I, don't, I wouldn't be able to say that there's, there's a hard and fast rule there, Dan. Um, each each spill that I've been on, it has it has varied, and but we are certainly able to integrate with the uh, with the polluters incident management team, and we've done that um, on a number of occasions. I'm just I'm just laughing um, when you refer to them as the as the polluter in the United States. We have a very nice uh, name that you already referred to, or we call them the responsible party, and it sounds so much less like you're going to jail <laughs> than when you call them the polluter. Right. Yeah. I, remember I did this. I did a big drill uh, down in uh, Brazil, I don't know, 10 years ago or, or something. And they, too, used the incident command system. And they also formed a unified command. But it was unified without you. 
Right. right. There's no seat at the table for the polluter, right? <laughs> All we care from the polluter is that you write the check and you give us your passports because we're not letting you leave, right? Um, so, 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 so there is a seat at the table in unified command in Canada for the polluter. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the polluter... Um, responsible party, responsible polluter. Maybe that's the, the way. <laughs> um, well, I guess so, I guess just because you showed up in the in the incident command post, you're a responsible polluter, as yeah, opposed to yeah. running away and being an yeah. irresponsible polluter. Yeah, the, the the way it works. I mean, the the, the expectation is is that the um, the responsible polluter takes the lead for the the response. Um, and, you know, historically, Coast Guard has sort of been more a monitoring role. So as long as the polluter is doing what needs to be done, uh, the, the Coast Guard sort of, you know, took a, took a bit of a step back. Uh, we're seeing a change in that. We're seeing a more active Coast Guard in, in unified command. Um, but at the end of the day, even though it's, you know, it's, it's a unified command, the, the Canadian Coast Guard does have that 51% card. Um, so if the polluter decides that they... Um, are not going to take an action that's been directed, let's say, by the environmental unit. The Coast Guard does have the authority to come in and, and, and make sure that that action happens. They also have the authority to take over the response uh, if, if they deem it necessary. And then if there isn't a, if there isn't a polluter, if you go back to the, the mystery spills that we're talking about, um, if it's a mystery spill or a legacy spill uh, and there's no polluter, then, then the Coast Guard is, is, taking, is, taking that, uh, is taking that lead. All right. Well, all of those things are are mirrored in the United States. All that is also true. But in my, some of my other roles, I could end up coming to Canada as part of a spill management team. And it's good to kind of reiterate how that all fits together because it is so ever so slightly different than it is in, in the United States. I remember doing a big, uh, one of the, not Canuas, Canuas Lant a number of years ago, the, the, uh, U.S.-Canadian joint cross-border exercise on the Atlantic coast. And one of the tactics that was looked at was the deployment of aerial dispersants. And in the United States, you actually you know, get uh, permission buy-off from the unified command, from regulatory agencies, from the region response team, which is in a sense uh, permission to legally apply dispersants. But this drill a number of years ago, the Canadian unified command would never go so far as to say, you have our legal permission, simply we're not going to stop you and we'll decide whether or not to prosecute you for it later, which <laughs> I thought was a really interesting uh, approach. So you you know you get used to doing things in one country, and then you go into Canada, or you go into the Netherlands, or you go into Brazil, or you go somewhere else, and you don't realize, huh? They say ICS, but that doesn't mean that the rules are the same. Right. Yeah, and and I mean that's uh, that's the unique thing about this industry is is it's. Um, it is a global industry, um, and uh, you know we are we are a regional player. Uh, our 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 main area of operations is, is the west coast of, of Canada, um, but uh, that you know we've been involved in, in international spills. We we sent up a vessel to to Exxon as we we, we as we started talking there. We had we had crews down in, in Deepwater Horizon, 
Um, and certainly, you know, if there is a if there is a spill in those shipping lanes that I was that I was talking about, there is going to be a joint uh, a, a joint uh, response from the Canadian and, and U.S. side. And as you mentioned, there's there are there's there are treaties in place to to address that um, for um, for the the B.C. Washington areas that is that can U.S. pact. Um, and as as you know, Dan, that uh, you know the Canadian and American Coast Guards are jointly responsible for exercising that. And the, um, the, on the Canadian side, they'd be engaging uh, uh, Western Canada Marine Response, and on the American side, it'd be uh, MSRC. Um, so, so there's there's certainly those, those every time we do those exercises, there's certain little interesting pieces that that come out. Uh, even though the the ICS principles are the same, uh, the response tactics are the same. There's always something that kind of hic, hic, you know, there's always these little hiccups, whether it's border crossings or, or something else that happens, and and that's why those exercises are so so important to to continue to work out those pieces. But you know, going back to the um, uh, dispersants or you know, in situ burning, this sort of alternative response measures um, on the Canadian side, uh, that's that's the sort of overseen by Environment Canada and. Um, you know, historically, if, if, if WCRC wants to use dispersants or in situ burning, we do need to get uh, their approval um, beforehand is, is, is how that works. I think they, they understand that, that the current system is a bit cumbersome because really, if you're going to use dispersants, particularly if you're looking like at a product like uh, diluted bitumen, which gets viscous really quickly, so your window to use dispersants is quite narrow, um, that, you know, if we're going to use, be able to use those, those alternative measures, they're going to have to, uh, you know, tighten up the, uh, the sort of the, the approval process for that. And then, and I know Environment Canada and the federal family are looking at doing that, um, uh, you know, right now and sort of, and sort of tightening that process up so that we can, we can more, more, more confidently add those measures into our toolbox. Because right now in, in Canada, the, the, the primary uh, tactic for, for spills is the, you know, the mechanical recovery using the booms and the vessels and stuff. And that's not the case in all jurisdictions, right? If you look at um, the, uh, the, the, the English Channel, for example, uh, their primary response, their go-to is dispersants right away. Um, there's just too much traffic out there. If you're gonna launch a, um, a, a large scale mechanical recovery operation, you're gonna be blocking up traffic. So um, their go-to is dispersants. Uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's certainly a, a topic that gets a lot of attention um, you know whether they're effective, um, and and we don't we don't make those decisions. We we turn to the the environmental unit. Uh, they they all do that net environment benefit analysis. Um, it's it's not you know there's there's always negative consequences either side you look at it. But what's 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 the least what's the least damaging for the environment? And so you have those experts, and that's the beauty of of using that incident command system is is being able to bring in those experts into the response um, you know, right away, especially um, and more, you know, increasingly the, that the, the First Nation knowledge too, um, that, um, you know, that the Nucus Sound spill that we're working on, we've got you know, First Nations are right in the environmental unit and you know, we have data on sensitivities in that area, um, but often we don't have that, uh, that first-hand knowledge, that cultural knowledge that goes into uh, some of the, 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 the sensitive areas on the coast. So, uh, to be able to bring them in into the environment unit to help make those decisions on what is the best cleanup technique in this particular situation. Um, where should we be concentrating our, our protective efforts uh, in the response? Um, so that's a, that's, a huge, that's a huge benefit for uh, the operations folks like WCMC to be able to lean on that, that technical expertise uh, during, uh, during an incident. 
Well, down in the Gulf of Mexico, dispersants are applied much more quickly than they are in other parts of the, of the country. Here in Washington and Oregon, uh, we have some pre-approval areas off the coast that uh, we can fly dispersants with the blessing of the federal on-scene coordinator. We don't have to go through, uh, we don't have to go through the entire uh, region response team for, for approval. We have some case-by-case -case areas, and then we have some absolutely positively no, never gonna happen, don't even bother to ask kind of kind of areas. Do you have do you have some similar pre-planning that's been done? And what do you have in the in-house for ap dispersant application capabilities? So the um, the 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 East Coast. Um, uh, so they're they're on the East Coast of Canada, uh, which has actually a, a lot higher volumes of oil shipped out of, of the East Coast. Um, we have a sister organization out there, the ECRC, um, and they they did go through an exercise with an external consultant, Dilla consultant, to to develop just what you're talking about, sort of the the red zone, the no-go zone, you're never going to apply dispersants there, the yellow zone where maybe, and then the green zone where you know you definitely can do that right away. Um, we, would like to, we would like to see that um, uh, done on the West Coast as well. That, that, would, that would really help our, our um, response planning, um, knowing ahead of time where we're going to be able to do it for sure and where we just shouldn't even be bothered. In terms of the, you know, if, if, if we, there was a go-ahead for dispersants, um, if there was, if it was a large scale aerial piece, um, certainly we'd be looking to, um, you know, either OSRL or, or down in Washington state for, for support on that side of things. Uh, if it was on a smaller scale, we do have um, dispersants uh, capacity on some of our skimming vessels. So we were able to do that on a small side, but a large aerial dispersant operation, uh, we'd be looking at outside support. Okay. Do you have a stockpile of dispersants of your own or? Would you be looking to have OSRL or MSRC? Oh, yeah, we, we we have a we have a small supply of sort of the shore, on the shoreline cleaning side of things, but nothing to to, to handle a large uh, a large aerial operation. So we'd be looking to the uh, OSRL um, or elsewhere, and that's really where that you know we talked about the the global side of the of the business, um, and and in, in this in this situation, it's it's the mutual aid arrangements, right? So. Um, you're, it's a similar to any kind of emergency response where you've got your local, your local capacity, you've, you've got your sort of regional capacity and national and then international capacity. Um, so as, 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 this, as the severity or the complexity of the spill um, uh, you know, gets, gets, gets more significant, then you're going to be start cascading those, those resources in. Uh, so in, in the case of uh, a large scale spill where we're looking at this person, we're going to be looking at our mutual aid agreements. Um, and to, and uh, and our, our outside networks to support on on that dispersant side. It was really neat to see OSRL bring that uh, 727 Boeing 727 dispersant aircraft online. As far as I know, that was the that was the first uh, commercial passenger jet converted to a dispersant use. And now my understanding is that MSRC is working on two 737s as dispersant aircraft. So that is very exciting as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was um, I saw that presentation uh, that uh, was part of the, uh, the 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 event that you took on um, a little while ago, and, and certainly that's uh, that would that would be a game changer for them, absolutely. Michael Lowry, it's anticipated that tanker traffic in British Columbia waters will increase as oil exports ramp up 
what preparations are you making for that increase in traffic? Yeah, so I mean, the you know, part of part of the uh, preparations here for um, for for this this expansion in tanker traffic in in the uh, in the Juan de Fuca and in, in the Georgia Strait is is we've been we've been launching a, a coastal response program um, uh, over the last number of years, and, and and one of the key pieces to that is is coastal mapping um, for not only not only the the shipping lanes but basically the entire coast of, of BC, the entire west coast here. Um, and this is this is something that's been with uh, spill response uh, in the spill response community for a while. Um, but uh, what we're doing here is we're we're um, we're, we're bringing, really bringing in, taking advantage of that the, the improvement in GIS technology um, over the last number of years. So we're bringing in data sets um, from a number of different sources. In some places, we've got 70 different data sets. And, and really, what we're looking at is trying to nail down in advance where the sensitive areas are on the, on the coast and when i'm talking about sensitive areas i'm, I'm talking about environmental sensitivities like uh, eelgrass beds or or steel haulouts uh, cultural sensitivities so we could you know uh, indigenous uh, burial sites or clam middens or other cultural sites and, and then also economic sites like marinas and so we, if we pinpoint those ahead of time we can develop a a booming strab strategy so Putting boom in the water to to prevent the oil from reaching that site in the first place, and so those strategies, uh, those protection strategies, are, are called geographic response strategies in in the business, uh, or GRS for for short. So we uh, we 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 develop those ahead of time first as a paper exercise, and then we go out and ground, ground truth that that information. So you know these GRSs will contain information like where uh, you know what first of all what are you protecting, what's sensitive there. Um, and then where, where are you going to put the boom? Um, where's the, where are the anchor points for the boom? Uh, how are you going to tie it up? How much boom do you need? Uh, how, many, uh, how many vessels will you need to deploy that particular uh, strategy? And so once that strategy is developed, it goes into the GIS system and it's available on this mapping platform. And so if we have a spill, uh, we do that trajectory model. We know it's headed in a certain direction. Uh, we, can, we can send our... Um, our, uh, our GRS uh, teams out uh, to deploy those protection strategies in advance. And so they're heading to that, uh, that particular site. They can bring that up on their smartphone. Uh, they can dial in uh, what, that, what, that, uh, what that protection strategy requires. So it really cuts down on that, that response time uh, initially. So we've got about 700 of those um, along, the, uh, you know, along the coast so far. Um, and what has what, what, really been beneficial for us is this has been uh, a fantastic way to bring um, uh, you know bring coastal communities into response. When when we um, you know first started um, really reaching out to communities, what we found is is that uh, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of um, uh, involvement of coastal communities in response planning, and so they they really felt left out. Um, this is you know I'm talking about on the Canadian side, um, they really felt left out of response. So. This allowed us to bring them into response by helping to, us to identify sensitivities. So even though we've gone through this process of bringing in these data sets in, there's still going to be, you know, on, in the Gulf Islands, for example, there still might be a local bird expert that can really help us out um, with, uh, you know, with identifying spots that maybe aren't in any current data sets. And so it allows us to bring the communities into, into the response process. And, and then we've also committed to making that, uh, that information available publicly as well, which, which uh, in Canada was, was, was not something that had been in place. So you know, now we've got a dedicated public portal. 
uh, you know, folks on a particular island can go on, look at what the strategies are in place, uh, know that, you know, have some comfort that uh, the, the areas that are important to them are, are, are um, you know, have been looked at and there's plans to, to protect those, those areas. And, and we're now in, in, in the, uh, the stage of that where we're bringing in equipment for those particular strategies. So uh, we're, we've got um, uh, 20 foot uh, sea cans that uh, are stacked with uh, 1700 feet of boom. Um, these are uh, these coastal response packages are, are being put into into the local communities, into the marinas, and then we're training folks in those areas um, through our best of opportunity program to to access that equipment and deploy that equipment. So in effect, they're really uh, they're really empowered to protect their own backyard, and uh, that's not to to take the work away from us. It's because we want to be able to have our specialized equipment, the large skimmers that we talked about. Um, tackling the, the you know the main the main spill site, um, and, and and obviously you know folks who are living in that community are going to be able to get to the get to those uh, protection strategies you know potentially sooner than us that are coming from one of our bases. Um, so it's it's um, it's been a great way for um, uh, for us to to make sure that that folks are are aware of of, of the protection that's out there and uh, and have an active role um, in the protection of their own uh, their own backyard. Yeah, that's got to make them feel good, especially since WCMRC is covering literally tens of thousands of miles of coastline between the Gulf Islands and the Queen Charlotte Islands. Um, I mean, I don't know how many miles of coastline it really is. I've sailed through a lot of it in my time. It's a, it's a lot. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, 28,000 kilometers of, of, of coastline um, and, uh, and, and a lot of it extremely remote. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, infrastructure in, in the southern part of, of the coast and, uh, and in the north with Prince Rupert is, is, you know, soon to be the third biggest port in Canada. But in that central coast area, it, it, is, it is very remote. Um, so it, it's key that communities in that area um, have, have the ability to, to respond while we're mobilizing some of our bigger assets. Yeah, I mean, once, you're, once you go north around Cape Caution, and you get up through Bella Bella and that area, it's uh, it's remote, as you say. It's hard to get to. There aren't very many airstrips. I mean, it's it's out there. Absolutely, yeah. But it's my favorite part of going north. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Canadian yeah, part from 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 uh, Cape Caution up through Grenville Channel. Beautiful. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you, Michael Lowry. This has been really really great. I especially like hearing how you implement. ICS. So I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having us on today. And, um, you know, if, uh, perhaps we can chat again in, a, in, a, in, a, in another time when we have some more, some more news for you. I look forward to it. Thank All right. You. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Tactics Meeting with our guest, Michael Lowry from WCMRC. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, as much as we enjoyed making it, please tell a friend, send a tweet, make a Facebook post, help us spread the word. It'd be a great favor. We would greatly appreciate it. Wear a mask and stay safe.